Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Susan Gray and it's my great pleasure to have with me today best-selling novelist Robert Harris, um, who is going to talk about his new novel, Act of Oblivion. Robert, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Can I ask you, first of all, what attracted you to the early 1660s, the beginning of the Restoration period, as a setting for a novel? Well, it was just this um, thing that I'd never really focused on, the hunt for the people who'd signed the death warrant of Charles I uh, when King Charles II returned to the throne in 1660. Parliament um, passed an, an act of oblivion, an act of forgetting and oblivion, it was called, a rather beautiful title. Uh, and this basically said that they cancelled all antagonism left from the Civil War, except for anyone who'd had a hand in the execution of Charles I. Uh, and uh, so a huge manhunt was started. Oh, 59 people, I think, signed the death warrant of Charles I. There were about 30-ish uh, left alive. They were wanted, and anyone had sat as a judge on the king. And I thought um, this would make a very good structure for a novel, a, a manhunt and especially if I could invent a manhunter-in-chief. Someone must have coordinated this hunt for these men, which went on across the continent and throughout England. And um, so I thought, well, I'll invent that character. And then I thought, then I, as I looked at the regicides, the men who went on the run, wondering which I could write about, there were two in particular which immediately appealed to me. They were Colonel Edward Wally and Colonel William Goff, a father-in-law and son-in-law, the older man, Wally, was Cromwell's cousin. They were very close. Both Wally and Goff were among the handful of people with Cromwell when he died. And uh, they fled to New England and went on the run. And so I suddenly saw that I had potentially a natural chase novel, really, of these two running and one man coming after them. And, and using this lens, I could look at the English Civil War, which seems to me... It's curiously neglected in fiction. There are a lot of non-fiction books, especially coming out at the moment, but in novels it's not been very much done. I think because it's so complicated and alienating a subject and a period. But anyway, I thought using this mechanism, I could, I could try and get at some of the, uh, the, the factors behind the English Civil War. So that's, that's really, in a nutshell, what I've tried to do. And in the English Civil War, obviously, faith and politics are completely co-joined. What do you think the role of faith in politics is nowadays? Well, obviously, nothing like it was in the 17th century, um, for which, if you'll forgive the phrase, one might say, thank God. I think one of the reasons the novelists have shied away from the English Civil War is because it isn't, although in part, obviously, it's a political and economic struggle, it's also at its core a religious war and um, you can't even begin to approach any kind of understanding of it unless you get inside the heads of people for whom uh, faith was 
10 times, 100 times more important than politics. And you can't understand how Cromwell, for instance, could have won uh, or, uh, so many battles unless you understand that his men fought with a kind of belief in God and a fearlessness about dying, uh, which is very hard for us to understand now. So, you know, uh, faith is absolutely all important in a way that, of course, it simply isn't now. Uh, now we have scientific and rational explanations for things. I mean, this is an age, obviously, of religious fundamentalism and of uh, superstition and of beliefs, uh, often quite irrational uh, beliefs. Uh, that has come back far more. So, uh, I mean, I think that I think that to write about religious faith is you can't really write about power unless you under, have some understanding of faith. I think, and of a of a of a dimension that a lot of people. Uh, carry around in their heads, whether it be horoscopes or whatever, but it is is beyond the, the material. Uh, but your characters are also very driven by emotions. Um, I'm thinking of William Naylor uh, when his they are seized, saying mass on Christmas Day, and his wife miscarries and then dies. Um, so you give your characters a spiritual motivation, but they also have very um, identifiable with emotional ones too. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely, of course. I mean, Cromwell is a particularly fascinating example. I mean, to try and work out what was faith and what was um, pure worldly ambition, uh, what was genuine divine inspiration, what was pure self-deceiving humbug, <laughs> um, baffled his contemporaries and probably baffled him. Uh, so, yeah, no, of course, everyone has... Um, uh, there's enough within the period and within the characters, especially Naylor, who you mentioned my, um, the, the regicide hunter, there's enough in them for us to be able to identify with. I read the letters, of, I went to as much original source material as I could, and the feeling of these men on the run who've had to abandon their children uh, and wives for their families, for the families they're missing. That's very, very powerful and is completely modern and understandable to us. And also the, the, the structure of the chase. I mean, that for me, that unlocked the period because the chase everyone can understand. And um, it was quite modern in its way, the, the relentless hunting down of these people. And that gave me a kind of narrative spine for the novel. The, and one of the characters, the older character, is writing a memoir of his time with Cromwell, which is quite plausible, actually, as a lot of these people did did write memoirs of of the Civil War. You know, all of this enabled me to sort of uh, try and get inside the period and inside the motivations of of, of people at, at that time. And um, pre-revolutionary America seems to be having a bit of a moment in fiction at the moment. We had on Golden Hill. Um, the National is about to revive um, the Crucible. Is there anything special, do you think, about this sort of vast tract of land and a sort of society being formed, um, almost sort of in front of the people's eyes, that makes it good for fiction? Yes, I think so. I mean, one of the undiscovered aspects of one of the novel undiscovered before I started it was the extent to which um, America is the creation of really the losing side in the you know in the end of the Civil War that it it was uh, obviously the great wave of migration was Puritan a lot of 
money for the parliamentary cause and indeed a lot of men went back to fight for, for the parliamentary cause and then came back out to America again. So America is completely, New England is completely woven into uh, the English Civil War. And in a sense, it became the kind of arc that carried on the ideas of idea of getting rid of the king uh, and of putting um, the religion at the very centre of a community and a rugged individualism, an individual relationship with God that didn't wasn't passed through a king or bishops. Uh, and the English Revolution and the Puritan settlers. This is in the DNA of modern America. This is inescapable. You only have to go to America and listen to all the religious uh, radio stations uh, to observe Roe v. Wade, for instance, um, the extent to which these ethical, moral, religious issues are absolutely vibrant in American politics in a way uh, that they are not, uh, certainly in England and indeed in most of Europe. Um, would you say in... Um, the UK and Western Europe, currently, it is possibly a disadvantage for politicians to be religious. I was thinking of Alistair Campbell saying about Tony Blair that he you know, didn't do uh, didn't do God, but then when he left power, he found he could do God. Is there? Do you, do you think God has sort of has been? There just isn't the space for God in Western politics now. No, I don't agree with that. Actually, <laughs> most. Prime Ministers that I can think of have had some connection with uh, the church or with faith. Um, and it's all very well for Alistair Campbell to say that about Blair. He did win three general elections. Um, and um, he is very much a man of uh, faith. His successor, Gordon Brown, was the son of the manse in uh, Scotland. And Theresa May, of course, was the daughter of a vicar, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, attended church every week and um, indeed lectured. I seem to remember the Church of Scotland on a famous occasion. So actually, uh, among those who get to the very top, I think there is quite a lot of uh, religion, far more than there was years ago. I mean, Winston Churchill took no interest in religion, for instance, nor did Harold Wilson uh, or, or James Callaghan. I think it's uh, curiously, as as you would think that the influence and numbers of the church have declined, um, their, their representation in Downing Street has rather increased. You're speaking to me from a former um, vicarage. I think I can possibly see a lectern in the background. Yes. Does any of its sort of former use still exist? Are there still traces of its former inhabitants? This, the vicarage, yeah. yes. Um, well, this is the vicar's old study. It was a grand building put up in 1860 when the church must have been at the zenith of its wealth. Um, it's, it's a big house on the Kennet-Navon Canal. And uh, it's a working house. I mean, it stopped being a vicarage in 1938, but uh, you, can, you can feel that the, the, the place was made for people from the village to come in. And this... Uh, I've worked now for 30 years, nearly written 14 novels in this room, uh, which was the Vicar's study. And uh, the, you know, it's very, I like the architecture, I like the style, the Victorian Gothic style. So yeah, it is, you can, you can feel the, that it was at one time in the centre of the village. And the house also has a very strong Jane Austen connection in that the, the house before this built on exactly the same spot was um, the vicar had been a uh, 
pupil of George Austin, Jane Austen's father, and the two families were very close. And Cassandra Austen, Jane Austen's sister, was engaged to the vicar's son. So she often stayed here, and Jane Austen often stayed here as well. So the house is bound up, really, with religion and, and, and indeed literature. And your ministers of religion in active oblivion tend to have slightly or quite big feats of clay. Um, was it fun giving them those foibles? To be perfectly honest, the particular foible you refer to, which is absolute classic, of course, of um, uh, particularly the charismatic American preachers, is that they turn out to have fathered another family or whatever. Uh, that, with the case of Davenport, is um, a tested fact. And it, it, it does interest me the fact that so many of the loudest preachers against sin, sin themselves. And I suppose, and the explanation is given in the novel in a way, or the excuse, that it's those who most feel themselves most prone to sin, who feel themselves most moved to warn against it, um, is the charitable explanation for, for what seems to be um, a real decided phenomenon. Either that or God has a good sense of humour. And the moment people get up on their hind legs and start preaching morality, he has a habit of uh, creeping up behind them and hitting them over the head with a cushion. And your preachers in the novel do not hold back. I was laughing um, in the early Cambridge scenes um, where they have sermons that last for an hour. Um, <laughs> that would be a short one. We, uh, I don't think we'd be able to tolerate that today, would we? No, it's a pretty grim lot, I think, to have been a, a Puritan. When I started writing the novel, I'd always lazily assumed that my, because of my politics, I would have been uh, a roundhead. By the time I'd finished the novel, I, <laughs> I decided that I had decidedly cavalier characteristics because it was, uh, you know, life was made to look a grim struggle, really. Uh, so, so a Puritan meeting where there would be no organ, but you would chant a, a psalm, psalms. Uh, no, it wouldn't be unusual to have a two-hour sermon and to come and back and do it all over again in the afternoon. And in America, where they were really fundamentalist Puritans, they operated uh, in New Haven, Mosaic Law which was really taken the stipulations of Moses for the Sabbath literally so that it began on sundown on Saturday and you weren't allowed to prepare food and or travel anywhere except to uh, the meeting house uh, until uh, first light on Monday. So, you know, that and the destruction of uh, monuments in church, the... Um, abolition of music, the uh, stripping away of ceremonial vestments. Um, it's pretty grim, and it, it cannot help but irresistibly remind one of uh, Islamic fundamentalism with its destruction of old monuments and its repression of uh, jollity, really, and music and, um, and the inner life. Um, and that, that fascinated me because I really saw that these, uh, these fighters who were amateurs, really, but who beat the flower of the king's professional army, they were not afraid to die. And they did believe they would go straight to heaven. And that level of faith is worth, it triples the effectiveness of your fighting force. 
And so, you know, the whole history of the Civil War is is about faith, and it is it is about that the ability of people to go through extraordinary things. I mean, to actually go to America, to settle in America in the middle of nowhere, required an enormous act of faith in itself. It's no surprise that that it was only really the Puritans on mass that were settling New England because only they had the drive and the confidence and the belief to do it. In Act of Oblivion, you set up quite an interesting tension between um, Ned and Will about how much they believe their faith because Will seems to become more and more a firebrand and Ned seems to become more and more pragmatic as the novel progresses. Well, this is based on historical truth. I mean, um, Edward Wally, the elder character, who's about 60 when the book uh, begins, uh, came from a, a, a wealthy family fallen on hard times in Nottinghamshire. They were Puritans, but he was known as a fancy dresser uh, and he liked horse racing and uh, he was a political moderate. He opposed Cromwell's expedition to Ireland, for instance, and didn't go on it. He was not a millenarian or, or he, did, he did not believe in the, the Christ was returning to earth in 1666, which quite a lot of the others, uh, the, the hardliners did, including his son-in-law, William Goff, who was 20 years his junior. And the two of them, this rather unlikely duo, find themselves yoked together for year after year after year. And so it was quite interesting to me to uh, work on this aspect of their characters. Uh, I think it would have been Wally who would have persuaded Goff to flee with him to America to escape uh, execution for signing the death warrant. And I think that Goff would have permanently felt that he'd done the wrong thing because the, the martyrs, as they called themselves, the regicides who were put to death by hanging, drawing and quartering, without exception, went bravely to their deaths because they believed this was a fast route to seeing God. I mean, again, the similarities with Islamic extreme faith that one sees today, another parallel. Anyway, it was interesting to me to play these two off against one another because Goff was both religiously radical, that is, he believed that Christ would return to the earth in 1666 and the rule of the saints would begin. They believed the book of Revelation almost word for word. And Goff, who was a political pragmatist um, and not um, a a radical in the way that uh, Goff was. So, yeah, it's like age-old conflict across the generations in any uh, household, you know, the radical younger man and the more conservative older one. And it's interesting that they go through the same experiences while they're on the run, and those experiences seem to confirm them more and more in their differing viewpoints in that Wally gets more pragmatic and Will gets more extreme. Well, yes, I mean, and I think that that's probably, if you, you could not be much more tested than, than the horrible fate of exile, which, you know, the Greeks and the Romans regarded worse, a worse penalty than death was to be sent into exile. And these people were sent, these people found themselves 3,000 miles from home, hunted, um, and I think in those circumstances, the, probably the essence of your character does start to come out. You know, the belief among Cromwell and the army in the Civil War was that they were winning and they won because God was on their side. 
And that gave them the confidence to cut off the king's head, declare England a republic, and drive forward a most extraordinary kind of program when one looks back at it, because they felt that God was with them. Genuinely did. And Wally finds himself in 1660 running from pillar to post. And it's quite logical that he, after a while he would start to say, well, is God with us? Is he, he's obviously, he doesn't seem to be with us now. Was he ever really with us? Or were we simply assuming, because it suited our purposes, that God was um, fighting for us? This, of course, is little anathema to uh, Will, who continues to believe that if they can just hang on until 1666, stay in America for six years, then um, their enemies will be overthrown and the kingdom of Christ will return to earth. I mean, these were genuine, strong convictions at the time. It's one of the difficulties of writing a novel like this is to try and make such figures sympathetic because, I mean, Ned is relatively easy. I can understand Ned. Will, Will Goff, is an altogether tougher nut to crack. He is interesting, though, because he... I went through all the letters that exist between him and his wife and between him and his earlier career. And he had an enormous love of his wife and uh, children. That's a very strong redeeming feature for for William Goff. And um, I think, think, um, you know, I hope that the novel gives him a fair play uh, and and he doesn't simply come across as as someone who's half-demented. How was writing the very graphic scenes in the novel or the, um, the hanging, drawing and quartering? What was that like to do? Well, it was difficult and I dreaded it from the beginning. I kind of read the passages almost with my hand over my eyes. But they're brief, actually. I mean, it's only a page of that. And, you know, you've got to be truthful. You know, first of all, uh, that was how violent that age was. This was years after the death of Shakespeare, 50 or 60 years after Shakespeare died. This is what people were willing to do. Um, enlightened, uh, clever, humane, relatively humane people would uh, impose this penalty uh, in front of, uh, of crowds of tens of thousands. Um, and I needed to express that and uh, show that. And also... Quite frankly, it shows, it it invests the reader in Ned and Will getting away. The alternative to um, hiding, capture, and this form of death is something that I think any reader will be willing them on to try and escape. And there are quite a few sort of maimed bodies in the novel. A lot of people bear wounds either from the Civil War or from um, previous religious torture, they've been branded or had their ears cropped. Were they difficult to depict? Um, Less so. um, You know, this was a time of, um, well, first of all, it was a civil war, which was immensely bloody, as all civil wars are. And a lot of wounded men were left alive, as they were at the end of the First World War, begging on the streets. and uh, it, the fighting, which dragged on for seven years in the end, nearly, and that was just the civil war before it then moves on to the war in Scotland and Ireland. There were, um, you know, there, it was savage. Uh, there were uh, war crimes and atrocities. Um, 
and people were scarred by it physically and mentally and it's the job of a novelist to to be honest above all i hope it, the book doesn't sort of dwell on this hugely but it's certainly there uh, in the background and the other thing that really struck me was i kept writing these characters and you know who, who were they married to and again and again and again these male characters had a well, on the, at least their second wife, if not their third, and again and again, their first wife had died in childbirth, that you realised, and one of the characters observes this, that even the death by hanging, drawing and quartering was probably no, not much more painful than the experience of most ordinary women giving birth in these days. So, you know, it was a land soaked in uh, blood and suffering and bereavement. Uh, and in such a world... One can understand how religious faith was absolutely central. It was the only comfort you had and the only uh, explanation as to why things were ordered as they were. So you need, I, if I'm going to express the religious um, strength of these characters and their belief, I have to show the world in which, in which that religious belief was all important. And your female characters on the whole tend to be more pragmatic than men. I was particularly attracted to the uh, character of Mary Goffey, prudent Mary. What was it like to write her? Well, it was great because these were very strong women. They weren't strong in terms of uh, playing a role in politics or in the army, obviously, but they kept the show together and they were pretty tough pioneers. Uh, I mean, Mary, who you mentioned there, She's had 15 pregnancies and is rather relieved um, to find that she's just going through the climacteric and uh, she won't have to um, have any more. The menopause has come upon her. She's had to keep the uh, this house going in Cambridge, Massachusetts, while her husband has been in London and then he returns. And so she has kept the place operational. And then there is uh, Will's wife, who lives in London when he flees with his father-in-law to America, she has to bring up five children. And every asset of the regicides was seized under the Act of Oblivion, the legislation that, that forced them to go on the run. And they, uh, so she was left completely destitute, bringing up five children in London and going through the plague and the great fire of London. So, you know, they survived and they must have been pretty impressive people to survive. And there is a lot of symbolism in the novel. People have locks of hair, um, they have miniatures, um, and in the case of um, William Naylor, he has that relic of the king's blood. How did you employ symbolism in the, in the novel without weighing, weighing down the plot too much? Well, it was... Essentially unconscious, really. I mean, um, the, the, this, these were the things, tokens that people would have carried around. Um, a, a snip of hair, a fragment of writing, a miniature portrait that could be carried from place to place. Charles I was the martyred king and uh, um, was accorded that status and a lot of people felt it at the time. And uh, so, yes, um, there was a, a regular trade in, in, in smears of his blood and locks of his hair. It's not so much that I, as a novelist, have consciously gone in and put these things as they would have been the natural things that would have arisen uh, for people living in that time. And Naylor worries that his um, scrap of linen with the king's blood in it, that the blood might fade. 
So he doesn't believe that the relic is completely incorruptible, which I thought was quite an interesting side of his character because he is so fervent, and yet he has moments of great doubt. Yes, I mean, I, Naylor is the character. He's the only solely invented character in the novel, really, a main character. Uh, and I had to be careful that I didn't become too sympathetic to him because, um, I mean, he is solitary. He's very modern in his outlook. Indeed, I come quite close to saying he's an atheist, which would have been incredibly rare, certainly never professed. Even if you half thought it, you would never breathe the word. Uh, so I found him interesting and I found the fact that he um, realises that for all the um, cheerfulness of the um, Charles II's court, they were really a bunch of pretty corrupt, lazy uh, rogues and that, um, and the morality of the court was completely notorious. Uh, and so he finds himself working for the, and they can never remember his name, which is a sort of running joke in the book. He is far more determined to avenge Charles the first death, any than any, basically anybody else. And he, I also gave him characteristics, which just came really from the characters I gradually wrote it, which we would recognize as manic depressive, that, periods of huge energy alternating with periods of, of despairing melancholy. You know, I needed a character who would pursue this quarrel for nearly 20 years, uh, long after everyone else had given up on it. And and so the, all these features su suggested themselves to me. And I, what, what, the book alternates between Naylor hunting these regicides and the regicides trying to get away. And what I hoped, because it reflected my own views, is... is what I hope is that the reader, each time, each chapter, the sympathies shift. So that when you're with Naylor, you kind of sympathetic to him. And when you're with the regicide, you sympathise with them. And that really sums up my own ambivalence about the period and where I might have found myself during it. Ah, oh, then you said you would probably have gone with the Cavaliers after, after much deliberation. <laughs> well... I say that because I write as a twelve man and living in the 21st century with all the freedoms and the, um, and the sin and failure to be dedicated that would have earned me the great displeasure of the Puritans and put me in the stocks. Um, at the time, given the part of the world I come from, Nottinghamshire and uh, Given everything else, I would imagine I would probably have been brought up a Puritan or would certainly have found myself more likely to be on Parliament's side. And I can see also, you know, that this sense, it is a revolution. It's not just a religious war. It is also a revolution in power and control of power and giving the rising middle class, you know, to avoid the cliched Marxist description, but giving them their head at last. They become the powerful mercantile class. They're sick of paying taxes. Uh, and they want more, they want the religious and the political freedom. They go hand in hand. So I recognize that I would have found myself with that aspirant class rather than with the, 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 the landed gentry. In popular entertainment, um, Puritans always get a rather bad rap. Do you feel you've uh, slightly restored the balance in the novel of showing, of, of showing them as in, you know, incredibly intelligent and incredibly faith driven people? Yes, well, I hope that I have. I mean, you know, they changed the world nearly, what, 
150 years before the French had their revolution and 200 or more before the Russians had theirs, the English had a revolution and became a republic for 11 years uh, and completely reinvented the, the, you know, the whole, you know, they tried to institute a kind of a commonwealth and make parliament supreme. Now, it didn't work and Cromwell became military dictator effectively. But there is, as Carlyle said, an incredible nobility in the effort. They were serious people. They were not frivolous. They were, there was something that walked the earth in England in the 17th century that was quite extraordinary. And the reverberations of it are still with us. And um, they weren't all uh, miserable people. Cromwell liked listening to music. He liked a pipe of tobacco. He loved his children. You know, they loved and lived like anybody else. Uh, and they had this faith which completely changed the world. And we still can feel the uh, echoes of it now. So I'm, I, I hope I am sympathetic. I try to avoid the cliches of witchcraft in, in New England, although they did, obviously. There was a lot of worry about witchcraft. Let's face it, I think in Germany they burnt 40,000 people as witches. So, you know, this was a global phenomenon, a European-wide phenomenon, not just a Puritan New England belief. So, uh, yeah, no, I hope that I do humanise them a bit and uh, show the, 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 the kind of gr- a kind of grandeur that they had. I know you went to Peeps as one of your, one of your source materials. Um, what other sources did you find useful? Well, I read an enormous amount. Of, I think I read every extant speech or letter of Oliver Cromwell, and I got this huge seven volumes of Thurlow's state papers, which concludes a lot of papers of letters from uh, Wally and Goff, my two uh, regicides, but also sank me into the, into the language of the time. So I read both specialist tracts about uh, Puritans in New England uh, and uh, about the Great Fire of London, and I read uh, general history, and I read very dry tomes about the structure of government in um, in the 17th century in England because I needed to, you know, it's important to me if I invent a character like Richard Naylor, what is his job? What is his title? And I discovered that the Privy Council would probably have had a committee, a regicide committee, presided over by Hyde, the Lord Chancellor, Sir Edward Hyde, and that they would uh, probably have had a clerk or a secretary. And so I gave my man that role. But I had to learn a lot of completely recondite information uh, about the uh, structure of government. Where, would, where did the Privy Council sit? You know, how, how did it operate? That sort of thing, which, which I, a lot of readers will find very strange. And I leave it all out, don't worry. But I need to know it in order to write the book. And for the biblical quotations from the Testaments and from the Psalms, did you go to the King James or the Geneva Bible? Always uh, use the King James Bible. I mean, this is the second novel which I've had to write with a kind of King James Bible next to me because um, the second sleep envisages uh, a kind of revival of of religious Protestant fundamentalism in England. Uh, And then, of course, Conclave um, also uh, required a lot of uh, biblical reading, in particular the Gospels I read for that so I've steeped myself in religion in the last 10 years or so in a way I never expected to. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.